God, what on earth are you doing? Have you ever asked that? Sometimes life can feel like a chaotic mess. I mean on a big scale and on a small scale. On, you know, a a kind of chaotic cosmic mess. History, um, disasters, victories, progress. Is there even any progress? And on a small scale, where you've got friends and fights and fun and failures all mixed in together. And sometimes you're like, what is God doing in all this? And I reckon if you, read the, if you open up a Bible for the first time and read this, was the first thing you'd read in the Bible, that's probably the question you'd ask as well. What is God doing here in this passage? It's hectic. There's like deception and assassination and swords and fat and poo. And there's a left-handed savior. What's up with that? As Christians, we're not sure how to take this. And I reckon for a lot of people, what we've just read is actually what's, in their opinion, wrong with the Bible in the first place. Because the God in it seems vicious and vindictive and vengeful. So are there like two gods, the old God and the new God? And God has really grown up a lot since the old God. He kind of had like this awkward phase with pimples and voice breaks and like asking girls out badly. But now he's matured. He's the new God of the New Testament with nice and loving. No way. If you, like me, believe that God never changes, then we have to take this part of the Bible with the other part because this is about the same God that we just sung about earlier tonight. It's about the same God because God never changes. And so this wasn't just some weird period in God's history. God didn't have an awkward phase. He didn't have one. Every part of history happens because God is taking it somewhere. And every part of the Bible points to that. So believe it or not, this story points us to what God is doing in the world. And it points us to what God is doing on the central coast, actually. So you ready for that? What is God doing in the world? To answer that, we need to get into the story. But I want to ask you a question. Have you ever needed rescuing? Because I have. Actually, it seems to happen to me quite a lot. I get myself into trouble. I once drove my car um, into someone's front yard, into a tree, and knocked over their retaining wall. Now, what do you do in a situation like that? I did what any sensible person uh, would do. Dad? I called Dad. I, I, I needed rescuing. Now, in this story, these guys, these guys, they need rescuing. And so that's what you come to as you read Judges chapter 3, verse 12. We'll get the picture. It says... Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again, they did evil and God saw it. See, don't make the mistake of thinking that God doesn't see the stuff you do. When we do evil, he sees it. Again, they do evil. Again and again, it's the pattern. Do you remember from last week? Here it is again. The pattern is they sin. So God punishes them their sin but then they yell out help God and so God in his mercy raises up a rescuer and he rescues them and saves them and and the land has peace and it's all good while the judge is alive but then the judge dies and they sink even lower 
And the spiral continues because they sin again and it keeps going around. The pattern repeats. It's like those bad relationships that your friends have and you're like, oh, you're fighting again. What a surprise. These guys are sinning again and it's so predictable. Now that sounds nothing like us, does it? Wait, wait. That is exactly what I'm like. Day after day, I don't know if you relate to this, but day after day I do the wrong thing and I sin against God. We all do. If you're honest with yourself, you do. Now, why is that? I'll tell you. It's because sin is not just an action that you do. It's a power that lives in you and in me. We are sinful. We are under the power of sin. And so we keep going back to it. Did you know that about yourself? That you are actually sinful. That you're born under the power of sin. That's what's going on for these people, the Israelites. Now, if you were God, would you let evil continue? Well, this passage says he doesn't. He hates sin. And he wants to shout at them, wake up. What are you doing? And so he punishes them. That's what verse 12 says. says, says, It says this. Because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, that's one of their enemies, power over Israel. So God works behind the scenes in his limitless power. And in human history, this is what happens. Uh, This other country, Moab, their enemy, invades Israel, takes over it, and makes life really hard for God's people, the Israelites. So verse 13 says, Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon, that's the king, came and attacked Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms and the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. So God punishes his people for their sin. Now that's a wake-up call for us. Don't think that you'll get away with sinning against the God of the universe. He's a God who cares about sin and he punishes it. Okay, now check out this king, King Eglon, king uh, of Moab. Verse 17, um, he presented his tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. That's a nice little description of him. Now, there are things in this story that are supposed to be funny, but that's not one of them. Because he's been getting fat off the Israelites, having them as slaves, taking taxes from them and and. Eglon being fat is like a sign of offense to Israel. It's not meant to be funny. It's meant to be tragic. All of God's good blessings to his people are going to this foreign king. And he's been getting fat off their work, their sweat. He's been ripping them off for 18 years. 18 years. That's as long as some of you guys have been alive. They need rescuing. But there's hope. Have a look at verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. Now, who are your heroes? Okay, I was in Sancharo, who's been there, like my new favorite place, and um, it has big writing, right? Have you read it? Chocolate is your salvation. You can see it up on there. Chocolate is your salvation. Apparently, chocolate's their hero. Good luck with that, I say. Who's your hero? What about that guy that just retired um, from Manchester United? What's his name? Alex Ferguson. 
Is he your hero? What about um, Iron Man? Okay, is he your hero? I got I got bad news for you. Iron Man is not real, but this guy is real. Is Chuck Norris your hero? <laughs> well, the guy that God sends, the guy that God sends is a really unlikely hero. Okay? You saw it there. It says he's a lefty. Okay? And in those days, guys, in those days, he would have been considered disabled. Okay? Now, are there any lefties here tonight? Chuck it up. Loud and proud. Good to see. I'm not saying that you're disabled. Okay? But that is what they thought then. So, actually, the phrase there, if you translate it, could be translated... He couldn't use his right hand. In their eyes, he was disabled. He was an unlikely hero. But this is the guy that God sends to rescue them. Now, he seems like a strange choice for God to raise up as a rescuer. God actually seems to like using weak people, which gives me hope. So what does Ehud do? Well, he makes himself a shiv, a knife, and... He said in verse 16, and he straps it to his leg. And then he goes to see the king, and he's carrying the tribute, which is all their taxes, to present to the king. And just as he's leaving the king, he starts to put his cunning plan into effect. Verse 19 says, He himself went back to Eglon and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. So this king's an idiot and sends away his bodyguards. At verse 20 says, the king like wobbles himself out of his seat, which exposes his belly. And I love this. In verse 21, the whole story slows down. You get it like in slow motion, detail by detail. Verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. He pooped himself. It says that. Ehud did not pull the sword out of him and the fat closed in over it. (laughs) Now, it's meant to be gross. It's meant to be disgusting. It's meant to be humiliating. Now, do you notice this, right? Do you notice that the Bible isn't just some out there book of spiritualized sayings. It's real and gritty because that's what real life is like. It's real and gritty. And the Bible is about what actually happened. And so you guys need the uncensored version. And you also need to understand the humor. I'm glad you guys were laughing because this bit is meant to be funny. Like the next bit. Look at verse 23. Ehud leaves the guy in a pool of fat and poo and slips out onto the balcony. He locks the doors behind him. And so the king's servants outside of the room, they smell it. They smell the dead king's poop. Okay? And what do they think? They think he's just on the toilet. Okay? And so verse 24 says they wait. And they keep waiting. And they keep waiting. But he never opens the door. Now, how long would you wait? 
They wait till they're really embarrassed. You ever waited outside the toilet, <laughs> waiting for the person, then you get really embarrassed? Well, they wait till the point of embarrassment, which is long enough for Ehud to slip away. Now, we read this, and it's gross. But Israel would have rejoiced to tell this story. See, they suffered under this king for 18 years. And here is their God humiliating their enemies, turning them into a joke. Not standing far off, removed from the real issues of the world, but getting involved. And then comes the victory. Verse 28, Ehud goes and gets his people and leads them into battle And Israel smashes their army. Verse 29 says, At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites. All of them were vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. Freedom after 18 years. Total victory. Israel has peace. Verse 30 says it lasts for 80 years. It's a great story, hey? It's not one you read in your normal children's Bible. But what are we supposed to do with it? How does this show what God is doing in history? Well, I'll tell you, number one, something that it shows us about God. Okay, you ready for this? What we see is a God who laughs at his enemies. See, notice how Ehud describes the victory in verse 28. He gives the credit to God. The Lord has given them into your hands. And so this whole story shows God's mighty power. The word for it is sovereignty. It means total control. I once played rugby for my school and our team wasn't that good. Um, You know that when the scoreboard on their side reads 100 before yours reads 1. That is not good. Have you guys ever been thrashed at sport like that? You know that feeling when you are just no match for them? Well, guys, this, guys, this is a total thrashing. For 18 years, Israel suffered under this king and they can't do anything about it. And finally, they cry out to God and God raises up a deliverer and all of a sudden... Those people become the butt of a joke. They're no match for this God. It's a thrashing. Guys, which tells us that God is not going to be defeated by Eglon or by atheists or by our friends. Or You know, it feels so foolish that we come here on a Friday night and read from an old book and sing songs. But look how powerful our God is. For those with eyes to see, they see a God who towers over the kings and leaders of the earth, who raises up and tears down empires at his command. This is the God who made every atom and holds everything together. This is the king of all kings. God will show the glory of his name. He's the one who rules. And so God is not beaten by Eglon and God is not beaten by popular opinion. See what's really going on. God is not humiliated. He laughs at his enemies. And so if following God ever feels foolish, just remember who it is you're following. 
But this passage actually shows us something else about God, uh, more of a clue to what God is doing in the world. Number two, we're going to see that God is the God who rescues his people. It's like that third Batman movie, okay? When Gotham City is in trouble and, and hope is lost. It's dark days until Batman comes out of retirement. The dark night rises and rescues the city. That's what God does. His people cry out, help! Now, remember for a second that they got themselves into this situation. Actually, it was this God who they mistreated in the first place. But His mercy and His love, guys, are so great that even though it's the last thing they deserve, God raises up a deliverer. Boys, in the front row, thank you. God raises up a deliverer to rescue His people. So, uh, verse 15 um, a left-handed Batman, ready? Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. Now to Eglon, Ehud would have seemed pathetic. He couldn't even use his right arm properly. And yet God chose to use this strange savior to humiliate his enemies. Now that's actually a pattern you see all the way through the Bible. You have heard the story of uh, King David and Goliath. Well, before as a king, when that story happened, he was like a scrawny, red-headed kid. He was a little ranger kid, okay? Oh. But God uses this little ranger kid to humiliate and defeat his enemies. He, couldn't, he could have used a mighty warrior but he didn't. Instead, he uses weak and humble guys so that there won't be any doubt who the victory belongs to. It's our God. And that's the story of the whole Bible. The thread that ties every page together is this. It's the story of the God who rescues his people. See, we humans, we've made the world into a huge mess, but God has a plan to turn the whole thing around, to rescue his people. And that's what you see here. But did you notice that Ehud's victory doesn't last? Just like Gotham City is fine when Batman is around, but when he retires, it all falls apart. Well, the spiral pattern continues. They sink even lower than before. So verse 30 says, The land had rest for 80 years. But the very first verse of the next chapter says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. So Ehud's victories or King David's victories or any other victories in the Old Testament, they don't last. Now, why is that? Well, think about it for a second. Are their enemies their biggest problem? No. It's actually them. It's their sin. It's what we were talking about before, the way they keep going back to evil again and again. And so this actually points us to what we really need. It says this, mere humans cannot ultimately save you. What they ultimately need is a savior who will fix their real problem, who will fix them. What they really need is a savior who will save them from their sin. That's Jesus. 
Now, did you know that the whole Bible points to Jesus, every page? It's all like one big arrow. This is the biggest arrow I could find, pointing to Jesus. So Ehud is a picture of Jesus. He's the weak-looking person that God uses to save his people. But Ehud's not actually able to really save them. He's imperfect, and the salvation he brings is only temporary. And so Ehud points to Jesus by showing them what they really need, a Savior who deals with our our sin problem. And so here's the third thing. What is God doing in the world? Number three, Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. Check out this verse from the Bible, 1 Timothy 1.15. The Bible says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ, Jesus, came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Who are you looking to for rescue? Now, do you know what I mean by that? That kind of thought you have, if I just had more friends then everything would be okay. If my family just had more money, then if I could just get that girl to like me, or if I could just do really well at school, or if I could just make that sporting team. You know, we pin our hopes on all sorts of things. And what you pin your hope on shows what you think your real problem is, whether you think your real problem is loneliness or being unattractive or being unpopular or being unhappy. If you just fix that, would everything be okay? Well, this chapter says no. That's actually not your biggest problem. Fixing that would just be like giving more money to a guy with a gambling problem. Yes, he's poor. Yes, that's a bad thing. But would giving him more money fix the problem? No, because he'll just gamble it away. The problem isn't mainly that he's poor. The problem is mainly that he's got a gambling problem. That's where he needs help. And so what is your biggest problem? It's you. It's your sinfulness. And the whole point of Judges and the rest of the Old Testament is to show us that. It's also to totally undermine our confidence in anything else to rescue us from that so that we only look to Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. See, God is the God who rescues His people. This is what God is doing in history. He's rescuing his people. And in Jesus, he's providing the rescue for our deepest problem. See, we're trapped doing the things that we know we shouldn't do. And our entrapment is dragging us to punishment from God. But he sends a deliverer, Jesus, who deals with our sin by dying for it. Jesus saves us by his death on the cross. Because that's what we need. For our sin to be paid for. And for the power of our sin to be broken. And so because of the cross, Jesus is able to bring complete rescue. And yet it seems so pathetic. You know, if we were there on that day, we would have seen a dirty, defeated, dying Jewish peasant on a piece of wood. 
Ehud the lefty seemed pathetic. Like this. How is this a picture of hope? And yet right there in that seemingly weak Savior, there is God's deliverance. Because of the cross, Jesus is able to bring complete rescue. And we learned it on fat. See, Right here in Judges, it's like the kingdom of God. There's God's people in God's place. They're living under God's rule. They've got God's blessing. And the land had rest for 80 years. But there's something seriously wrong with it. Because they still sin and they still suffer. But Jesus is bringing the perfect kingdom. When he comes, he's going to judge the world. And put an end to all evildoers. Justice will be done Evil will be punished. But those who belong to Jesus, who his death has saved, they'll be raised to life to live with him forever. In, we saw in fact, resurrection bodies, which are physical bodies, the same as you've got now, but gloriously transformed and living in the new creation, the rock-solid new creation, not clouds and harps, but just like this world, only way, way better, restored with no crying or pain or death, reunited forever with God and his people. Nothing but untainted happiness forever. That's the perfect kingdom. So what is God doing in the world? He's the God who rescues his people. It's a rescue mission through Jesus, the ultimate rescuer. He's guiding history towards that day. And right now, we live in the last days. There are minutes left on the clock. It's that moment of light just before the dawn. The overlap of the ages. The now but not yet. When the message about Jesus is going out and God is gathering people to himself through Jesus. That's what God is doing. That's the rescue that we're looking forward to. A salvation that's complete and perfect and permanent. So guys, why would you look to anything else for rescue? Don't live for this world. Remember that the best is yet to come. This is not our home. Who cares if you miss out on stuff in this life? Don't give up. Remember that the rescuer is coming. And get in on this mission. See, this life is not a holiday. Guys, God is taking this somewhere. Why would you miss out on that? If you're not a Christian tonight, become a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is the ultimate savior. Make him your king and your savior. And then... Live as a citizen of the kingdom. You saw on fat, trusting Jesus as your savior and obeying him as your king and all the stuff that we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. And telling everyone about him because we've got to get this message out. That's what God is doing in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you... Rescue your people. I pray, please, that on the Central Coast, you'll be rescuing many people and bringing them to make you their King and Savior so that we can be with them forever in heaven. God, I pray that we would live as citizens of the kingdom, remembering who you are, the God who laughs at his enemies, who rescues his people, and who sent Jesus, the ultimate rescuer. Thanks for that. Amen.